China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider. How does a Marxist, Leninist, son of a Red Revolution grow up to be a CEO of a globally competitive firm? To explore how Chinese entrepreneurial mindsets evolved from to today's booming capitalism with Chinese characteristics, as well as what legacies from that not-so-bygone era linger into 21st century China, we turn to Christopher Marquise, professor at Cornell School of Business. Chris, welcome to China Econ Talk. Thanks, Jordan. Great to be here. So today we're going to be looking at a few of your recent papers on Chinese communist ideology's impact on private sector firms. So I'm curious what got you interested in this topic in the first place? Yeah, so there's a couple of sort of intersecting threads that really got me started thinking about this. You know, the first is that I'm really interested in understanding sort of how China has transitioned post-1978 from a sort of traditional Marxist-Leninist communist uh, society to one that is much more capitalist and market-oriented. This is something you can see in the buildings uh, that exist, the vibrant economy um, you know how this the, actually... the app store that we just changed your phone to. We're recording this yes. live in Beijing. We just got um, uh, uh, we just got Chris on Xuexi Changua and Douyin and um, uh, Kuai Show and all these all this good stuff. So I am now totally up to date, thanks to Jordan. <laughs> but how this has sort of affected people is something that I'm really interested in, and obviously people's uh, sort of economic level per capita income has improved tremendously. But what about their psychology? What about the, how they think? Culture. So that's sort of one thing that got me very interested in the papers uh, we'll talk about. Uh, the second is, you know, really there's sort of this fundamental contradiction sort of underlying uh, the Chinese economy. You know, on the one hand, you know, the government talks a lot about communism, uh, a lot of propaganda about sort of communist ideology. But on the other hand, you know, it is very uh, market driven and market oriented. Every year I'll bring students to China. Uh, and invariably, I mean, these are students that have never been to China. You know, one will say to me, China is not a communist country. Uh, you know, they <laughs> look at the walls. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, that's sort of another interesting thing, sort of understand unpacking this, um, you know, contradiction. And the third thing is, you know, on a more theoretical level, uh, uh, the topic that I'm very interested in and do a lot of research on is called imprinting. And, and my background is actually not as a sinologist or China specialist, but it's actually as a sociologist and, you know, one that studies sort of economic and organizational processes. And, and I've been doing a lot of research in China over the past, you know, seven, eight years. But this is also, you know, something that motivates me. And this idea of how individuals that were socialized, brought up uh, and imprinted in some way with a communist ideology, then post-78, when the government does a pretty dramatic U-turn, sort of how they're able to adapt and interact in that system is really uh, an interesting question. To yeah, me. I mean, it's 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 sort of like the 1984 moment in George Orwell, where all of a sudden, you know, we were fighting Team Red and now we're fighting Team Blue. Understanding how that plays out in real life is a fascinating uh, question and one that a 
billion people in China have lived through over the past 45 years. So let's go back to that pre-1978 moment for one second. Great. Um, what do you think was your favorite anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist phrase that you would have been uh, you know, screaming from the rooftops? Uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, uh, sort of thinking about the, the rhetoric and Mao, I mean, has a number of sort of really evocative and, and amazing quotes. But sort of in doing this research, you know, obviously the famous one is that imperialist, imperialist countries are like paper tigers, you know, uh, and, I, and I like that because it actually, you know, captures this like appearance uh, reality where, you know, something that looks one way is actually different, uh, which I think, you know, the current communist uh, environment in China sort of is similar. But, you know, another one that I think is really great and sort of less known is Mao said that uh, feudalism, capitalism and imperialism are the three mountains that hang over China. Why not? Of course they are. I don't know. I, I see them. You know, there's this north, there's whatever. OK, so let's now turn to your uh, first paper we're going to be discussing entitled Defending Mao's Dream, How Politicians Ideological Imprinting Affects Political Firms Appointment in China. So politics and politicians have played a large role in China's evolution to a capitalist uh, or more capitalist market, particularly at the very early stages. So having the right connections, having the right ins with the local and uh, provincial governments, especially in those early years, was really key to getting your, your businesses off the ground. So let's first open this discussion by talking about what local councils are and what role they actually play in China and in Chinese economic development in particular. Yeah. So, so one of the things that we study in, the, in this paper is, you know, the extent to which the politician's background affects who they're appointing to the local councils. And, you know, so these councils were in Beijing, you know, just had the Lianghui. I mean, these are essentially the local version of Lianghui. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you have obviously the People's Congress as sort of one, um, you know, at the national level, in some ways analogous to, you know, the U.S. Congress. It's a body that, you know, ostensibly uh, creates laws, approves appointments, a variety of things. You know, the extent to which the votes in this are, you know, through democratic processes is not the same, obviously. I mean, the sort of recently in the, in the Western news, the most recent sort of vote you heard about was, you know, when Xi Jinping removed the term limits from the, the Constitution, there was a vote on that in the People's Congress. And and I think it was about 3,000 to... There were like 10 abstentions. Exactly. There. 10 I abstentions. Mean, I someone needs to write that article profiling <laughs> exactly. those folks. But. So I'm not sure uh, who those 10 people were, but, yeah. you know, the, so, the, you know, that's sort so, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, an example. And so they, these, they, they, they had a they had a rough uh, they had a rough breakfast that day. They, uh, right. And so, you know, these uh, body, the People's Congress is, um, you know, it's interesting because actually at the lowest, lowest level, the county level, it's democratically chosen by the populace who the slate of potential candidates are is obviously chosen by the party and, and you know, the government. So who you get to choose is, is pretty defined. But then, you know, those lower levels then roll up and elect the higher levels. So you have sort of the county electing a city and provincial and then uh, national. Uh, the second body is the People's Consultative Congress. And this is, you know, this is appointed, you know, also at the national level, somewhere around 3,000 members. Uh, a lot of could be celebrities, could be well-known leaders in, in the academic sector, in the business sector, as, as we're going to be talking about, uh, sports sector. You know, one of the pictures uh, that sort of stands out for me in this is I remember Yao Ming was appointed as part of this body. And you yeah. saw there are these pictures of him where his like gigantic body was folded into these little uh, the desks that they use. So 
Uh, so this is the second uh, sort of council. And a lot of research actually. Is is there any research on like the height of communist officials and like whether the taller you are, the more you advance? I know those studies have been done in the West. But... Totally. You know, I don't know about that. Okay. Chris, you got a lot of grad students. Okay. I mean, just get, it, get them on the case, please. We will, we will, we will look at that next. Um, yeah. So, so, so those are the two sort of councils that we're looking at. And, and for businesses, you want to actually be able to get on this because you can get a lot of various benefits and, you know, that's a two way street or double edged sword possibly, uh, in some ways, because the government is really interested in having business leaders to sort of in some ways co-opt and, and through more sort of soft mechanisms control the businesses and the economy. For instance, another sort of few years ago, I think around when I saw the Yao Ming picture, you know, there was a lot of headlines because that year they had invited many of the internet CEOs, like four or five of Sina, Tencent, Baidu, NetEase, you know, four or five years ago, the sort of really big ones. Sure. Um, and conversely, you know, for the business folks, why you want to be involved in this? I mean, not so much potentially the, the, the this effect of the internet CEOs, but you know, at these lower levels, when you are a smaller business, growing your business, actually having those close connections with the government, you know, there's various preferential tax policies, land uh, access you can get. You know, at the city level, the city governments establish a lot of banks. So you potentially can get preferential loans. So, mm. you know, in some ways, I mean, the, the government's having these business folk interested in having them to, in some ways, co-opt and control. But actually, the business leaders as well uh, have a real interest to gain things from these appointments. Sure. So what you look at in your paper is uh, politicians that have agency on who gets to join their councils, their backgrounds, and what that ends up meeting for who makes up these esteemed boards that presumably have long, not particularly interesting meetings, but maybe more interesting meetings after hours at banquet halls and, you, yeah. and, and, and whatnot. So, uh, so tell us a little bit about the people who are making these appointments, what their backgrounds are, and how it's sort of played out at the local and provincial levels. Yeah, so, so it's very interesting. So, so what we study are actually mayors and sort of the background of mayors as sort of really important agents in this process. You know, how governance at the different levels of the Chinese uh, sort of party state work is that actually the party secretary is the most senior leader in, you know, be it at the provincial level, you know, the governor being the second highest uh, at, in the city, the mayor is the second highest official, you know, after after the party secretary. Uh, and we actually collected data and studied uh, both party secretaries and mayors uh, and found actually it's the mayors that are really having the influential um, effect. And, and let me back up a second and tell you a little bit about the sort of the data and the study design that sure. we uh, put together. So uh, so we collected data on about 250 Chinese largest cities over about a 15-year period from 2000 to about 2015. Uh, and we uh, gathered a lot of data on, on uh, the mayor's and party secretary's background with the idea of being that, you know, maybe their prior connection to the local business, uh, connection maybe to Beijing, their background, be it, uh, you know, the extent to which, you know, the timing with which they entered the party, whether it was during times like the Cultural Revolution or not, may actually have sort of have this imprint on them such that they may actually be in, in some ways stronger believers in the communist ideology than others. And this would then affect uh, who they appoint to the councils and be much more or less, less likely to appoint business leaders who are in some ways you know, these sort of one of these mountains, the capitalists are one of these mountains mm -hmm. that are hanging over the the, Chi the Chinese uh, populace. And so so the, the analysis, you know, we studied many of these different factors and really found that it was whether the 
uh, mayor joined the CCP before 1978, when there was this much stronger, orthodox, Maoist, uh, utopian version of communism that was being articulated. And sort of after that, you know, when the the norms change, it doesn't have an effect. Impressionable youths. It seems like a pretty logical, uh, a logical, logical finding that there's a lot of Western writing about Maoist China, and basically, I think there's there's maybe an overrepresentation of people who are upset, have had terrible experiences, which are all real, right? But at the same time, this is what people live through. And if you're hearing something every day on the on the radio speakers, in the news, from your teachers, from your parents, it seems to make sense that sort of ideological background noise is going to filter through your life, even as the goals of the central government shift over time. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think this is, you know, we think this is really interesting because, you know, you would think, uh, you know, of course, all those things happen in sort of the, you know, 1984 example where, you know, they changed teams, you know, after 1978, increasingly, you know, every year, you know, the government, so the same entity, the party and the, and the government that imprinted you originally has done a 180, basically, and is now saying, you know, bring in foreign direct investment, grow your economy. Yeah. You, know, um, you know, it's interesting, you know, during this period, the extent to which, you know, these leaders were judged based on the GDP in their area is is tremendous. So, you know, there's some economics literature that sort of calls this the sort of GDP tournament where all of the city and provincial and other local uh, leaders are. They're trying to grow the GDP as fast as possible in their location because this is the key KPI that they're judged against. Uh, and then they're promoted as a result of this. You know, Xi Jinping has, uh, you know, recently called some leaders, you know, GDP heroes. Mm. So it's interesting, you know, there is all this, there is this background people have, but you would think too that people might change over yeah. time and particularly as... The, 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 the incentives become so obvious pushing you in another direction. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, there was a show that got very hot at the end of 2018, which I've been working way, way through. I think I'm on episode 14 of you know, 47 called Dajiang Dahe. In English, it's um, like a flowing river. And it's on uh, it's on YouTube with really good English subtitles. Uh, I recommend it. Everyone check it out. Spend some time on it. Have you have you caught it? I have not yet? caught it yet. I mean, okay. I, I, um, I I've heard of it and I have sort of I've started the first episode, but okay. I have but I've not. Uh, so I've not, so, I'm, I'm so spoilers for everyone out there. Um, initially, there's this big tension where this very local communist functionary is giving these kids a hard time, even though they tested really well on the Gaokao the first year the Gaokao came out, but their parents had a bad social background during the Cultural Revolution, so they shouldn't have been allowed. According to this guy's mind, they shouldn't have been allowed to advance and go to school once the universities were open. You know, this guy basically standing in for like the old mindset, and he's kind of villainized and eventually gets told that he's wrong by more enlightened party officials who over the course of the show end up being more and more enterprising uh, from a from a commercial standpoint and, and helping, you know, these small factories in this little town grow and sell more bricks right. and, and start, uh, you know, growing uh, rabbit hair and, and whatnot. <laughs> so it's a fascinating show that kind of illustrates the evolution and mindset and particularly how the Communist Party is comfortable with this story being told of like, look, after Mao died and after the, the Gang of Four, like we've got our heads on straight. And now we understand that growth and that improving people's livelihoods is, is the most important thing. So do encourage everyone to uh, to check out that show. Another media recommendation for you. Have you come across the Chinese mayor 
on oh uh, yes Netflix. of course yeah yeah, yeah. like uh, yes definitely any great, any yeah. any thoughts on that want to make a uh, no, except, I mean, that I remember it was just, it was very interesting and definitely consistent with the sort of economic focus and sort of this GDP tournament view, I think definitely came through in that documentary. Sure. Yeah. I think it's still on Netflix, but if yeah. it's not, I, I have faith in you audience to, uh, to, to find ways to come across it. So let's come to the next paper, Waking Up from Mao's Dream, Communist Ideological Imprinting and the Internationalization of Entrepreneurial Ventures in China. So if you grew up in pre-1978 China, you grew up in an ideological milieu in which uh, the world was divided into capitalist and communist socialist camps. And, and even the thought of cooperating or working with these rapacious foreign capitalists is sort of beyond the pale and would get you, you know, made fun of in school and, and possibly much, much, much worse. So I'm curious if you could walk through some of the hypotheses of how this mindset ended being filtered down and, and changing over time. The core hypothesis is really that firms that are were sort of founded and led by individuals that were socialized into the CCP before 1978 are much less likely to go and internationalize their firms, despite the, you know, again, sort of government's huge amounts of focus on going global in the post, you know, 78 and post, you know, 2001 uh, period. But these, you know, individuals that had this imprint again from their early experience socialization into the party, you know, are less likely to do this. In the paper, we unpack a little bit about sort of why this might occur, sort of this idea of communist imprinting. And it's, you know, like Jordan mentioned uh, a little bit earlier about, you know, sort of all the things that you have to go through to join the party. Going through sort of the, the formal process, we, we did some sort of uh, study of that. Things like, you know, the meetings you have to attend, documentaries you have to watch, reports you have to write. Eventually, you know, the oath that you have to take is we find uh, to be really a significant thing that shapes the minds of these individuals that then leads them to be you know, less likely to, um, to internationalize their firm. Interestingly, sort of opposite than the politician article that we, uh, that we did, you know, we find that these entrepreneurs actually end up adjusting over time. So you know, the extent to which they are you know, sort of close to the government and able to observe the sort of reality of the government process functioning. So again, sort of whether they're on these councils or not, and they're able to witness up, you know, in person political leaders and their rhetoric, whether they are, have joined and part of industry, government-sponsored industry networks, uh, whether they're in regions that have sort of high degree of, of foreign investment. You know, we find that sort of all of these processes over time actually end up weakening uh, this imprint and leading to, you know, over time, when they started, they really eschewed foreign cooperation. You know, over time, they're actually able to engage in foreign trade more likely. So the idea being you need to get the message that it's okay to work with these rapacious foreign capitalists over and over again in person and, you know, have assurance from the powers that be in your, in your you know, local, um, in your city, in your province, that um, it's actually okay. And this is actually really what we want you to do. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's fascinating, the idea that the government is the organization that kind of puts you in the mindset in the first place, and is the only one that really has the power to change your mindset afterwards. It really seems like a lot comes down to a, this, this very top down filtration of ideas in, in Chinese society. Yeah, no, I would you know, def definitely agree with you. I mean, we do find that, you know, it's, um, yeah, w you know, we sort of, Describe this uh, in the paper as sort of the, you know, the, this imprint has the seeds of its own decay because it's the government that and the, and the party that formed this imprint. And so they're really the only ones that can actually take it away. 
so now I think is a good time maybe to dive a little more into into the concept of imprinting. So could you could you talk a little bit, a little bit about it and apply it back to this in the past paper? At the outset, this is really the sort of theory and topic that I've devoted a lot of time to in my career. Uh, and the idea originally came from this German biologist, uh, Nobel Prize winner for this idea, Conrad, Conrad Lorenz. Uh, and his idea was applied to animals. So, you know, the famous example is goslings. So little geese, whenever they hatched from their eggs, the first thing they saw, they imprinted on. So if it's their, you know, the mother geese, which is what should happen, you know, they then follow mother goose around. If it's Conrad Lorenz himself, they then follow him around. You know, with a lot of famous pictures. I remember, you know, sort of growing up in my high school biology text, there, you know, one of these pictures of Conrad Lorenz with this, with this row of geese behind him following him because they had imprinted on him. This idea that sort of early conditions are very formative uh, was brought into the so from the biological sciences to the social sciences uh, a little later by someone named Arthur Stinchcombe made the arguments about this, but didn't really develop sort of the underlying processes and mechanisms. And that's really a lot of what I've been doing in, uh, in the China context, but then also things like U.S. banking and venture capital, and looking at how sort of early sort of founders and experiences have a lasting effect. And so, you know, you can see this in just sort of common day examples. Uh, so, you know, recently, you know, in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of discussion in the Western media about Uber and about how, you know, the Uber culture really reflects, you know, the founder, Travis um, Kalanick, uh, and just when they, you know, got, you know, when he left and they got a new CEO, how hard it would be for this CEO to sort of unpack this founder imprint. Sort of a funny example uh, that I heard once when I was giving a talk on this, someone was in the audience and, 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 and told this story, is that the early tech firm EDS, which is founded by Ross Perot, who ran for president, uh, I think in the late 80s sometime. Sure. Uh, so he was not was not ever expecting we get Ross Perot on the China Econ Talk <laughs> wow. podcast, but but here we go. Anyways. So he he apparently Actually, he was running in the 92 election. He must oh, okay, have had yeah. a position on uh, on Tiananmen, I guess. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You have to look that up. It's 92, going in the right. show notes, guys. Ross Perot on China. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. So uh, so anyway, so he apparently did not like uh, shoes with tassels on them or shirts with stripes that were too wide. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think who before... Does? I, yeah, who does? Exactly. <laughs> uh, so before he uh, before he ran for president, you know, he sold EDS to GM, I believe. Uh, and, you know, so he had no affiliation with the business since the 80s. But even more recently, you know, there is this informal culture at the le sort of legacy EDS of not wearing tasseled shoes and not wearing, you know, having stripes, uh, shirts with two stripes too long. So this is an example of how founders can really have a, a very lasting impact on, on their organizations. And it's through the people that they hire, the policies they set, sort of the different cultural expectations uh, they have. And, and that, you know, when these things get founded and start very early, you know, they end up lasting. Uh, and so, you know, that's sort of one aspect of it, that imprinting sort of affects the founder, you know, by setting up everything initially in the firm ends up having a, a long-term influence. You know, at another level, you know, imprinting also influences individuals. And this is something where, you know, we've talked uh, during this discussion about people that were coming of age, 18 years old, they were actually going through socialization processes by joining the party that then had a lasting effect on their cognition. And so this this idea that, you know, through sort of long-term socialization education, that can also imprint individuals. Yeah, I mean, this is this is basically the argument that the U.S., 
government is running around the world trying to make about Ren Zhengfei and Huawei, right? That this guy, he's an old hand. He's been at this a long time. He was he was around pre nineteen seventy eight, and uh, there's there's no way from a legal perspective as well as from a, a mindset perspective that he would not go against the Chinese government if they asked him to to do things with regards to these telecom systems around the world. Or you'll be hearing this episode after the show I did with the China Check Investor podcast guys, where we had this conversation about you know what the different mindset of these internet founders of the post 80s generation uh, who didn't grow up with any of this and you know were maybe in grade school in 19 uh in 1989 1990 and whose whole mindset has been a much more capitalist outward looking uh one and these are the generation of folks that are creating the bite dances of the world that are trying to go abroad in a much more aggressive and integrated way than the folks in these sorts of data sets so i'm looking forward to your to your follow-up paper 10 15 years from now watching and seeing how this story evolves so I just spent two years at a master's program in China and China studies and doing it, I watched a lot of ITE, but didn't necessarily gain too many hard skills. Had I only known that at the University of San Francisco's new master in applied economics, I could have learned something to actually make me super employable. You know, R, SQL, machine learning, all that good stuff you actually see on job listings in Silicon Valley and Zhongguansun, not necessarily have you watched all of Wan Song. So in this program, you can study the economics of platforms, auctions, and business strategy at the same time as you learn the tools of econometrics, experimental design, and machine learning. Plus, for all those non-U.S. students out there, this program is designated STEM, so you can apply for a three-year extension on your student visa and keep working in the U.S. after you graduate. To learn more and get an application fee waiver, go to usfca.edu jordan. Let's come back a little bit to uh, and, and, and down again to firm level decision making, sure. uh, which is another uh, fascinating slice you've taken into this topic called Resource Imprinting, Resource Allocation and Venture Performance, a study of Chinese entrepreneurs. And this looks at the impact of living through starvation periods on future business decisions. One of the things that I remember personally um, when coming to China and, and taking my first classes is when there are these professors who um, are 50 years old, like look like they could be anyone's dad, uh, you know, not particularly old people. And they talk about having periods of food scarcity in their life. And this is something that, you know, you see articles every once in a while in the New York Times saying that there's food scarcity in America, but I'm sure there still is and it's still awful. But these are not society wide situations that most of the Western world has had to go through basically since, I mean, post World War II, really. So the, the psychic impact of living through these living through these events, I think, is something that's very hard for folks who don't have family members or folks who have been lucky enough not to have this sort of thing happen in their lives or, or with their loved ones to go through. And I think it also makes for some fascinating research and 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 seeing how these time periods have firm level uh, firm level impacts. So um, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about how you design this research. Sure. So uh, yeah. So the whole idea for for this. Um, for this research came about from a number of different places. I mean, one, so this, uh, so unlike the other two papers we discussed that are published, I mean, this is a paper that's in process and really it came out of those other two papers where, you know, we're, we're interested in uh, imprinting and interested in how these early experiences pre-1978 affect entrepreneurs. There's two really important, obvious 
extreme periods, one being the Great Leap Forward from around you know, 1959 to 1961 when there was tremendous starvation, the other being the Cultural Revolution uh, you know, from you know, approximately 1966 to 1976. And this dovetails actually in a very, in, very interesting ways uh, with research that's been done in economics that looks at depression and how going through the depression affects CEOs, you know, levels of risk taking, how, whether they're more conservative in their um, business decisions. And, you know, you mentioned your, your professors at Beda. You know, my grandparents, I remember, uh, you know, they lived through the Depression. And the extent to which they were frugal, you know, I can't even tell you how, how, how much. And so I think, you know, on the one hand, we have this data that we've been studying. And on the other, there is this sort of analog in in the US that makes it sort of a natural thing to look at. Yeah. Um, you yeah, know, I mean, just again, from a from a from a personal perspective, like, you know, I, I had the grandparents who I think right. were probably a little long, younger than yours, but right. grew up in a family that had to live through this. And and I think that mindset my parents have talked to me about having rubbed off on them. But, you know, me four generations in right. like, I don't quite feel that. Um, I don't quite feel that sweat. But you know, it's taken eighty plus years yeah. um, for the trauma of living through such a period of insecurity to really wash off folks. So um, the idea that what's happened in China in the in the late sixties and uh, early seventies doesn't have any impact would would be a very surprising finding. So it right. it makes a lot of sense to me that um, you're going to see folks folks's mindset and and decision making really really be impacted by what they or their parents have lived through. Yeah. No. And I think. You know, you mentioned Ren Zhengfei uh, earlier, and I mean, he's an example of one of these people. And there's sort of the, you know, these pictures people I've seen circulated of him. You know, <laughs> you know how rich he is is mind-boggling, but but sometimes he still cues for taxicabs or it's like the Warren Buffett thing right. in that documentary where like if he's feeling rich, he's going to get the two dollar, <laughs> um, you know, egg and cheese sandwich, and if he, you know, the stocks exactly. are down one day, he's, right. he's not he's not getting the bacon on his on it, right? right. So exactly, you know, yeah. it's it's very much people are very much a product of their times, and and seeing that illustrated in data, I think is a is 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 a really fascinating thing to look at. Yeah, and so the design of what we what we did in the uh, in the study is we were able to track through uh, some data that both from the Chinese government and econ economists had used, you know, the extent of starvation in the places where the entrepreneurs grew up uh, and find, you know, sort of as you've alluded to, and as you'd expect that actually these, you know, individuals that grew up in greater areas uh, where there was greater starvation are more likely to rely on themselves for financing. Yeah, I mean, uh, just, just, just back to the independent variable, which I think is worth <laughs> quoting, and it's, and it's sort of um, a pretty scary morbidity. Uh, uh, the sum of excess death rates in the province of the focal entrepreneur resided in during emergent adulthood, ages 18 to 25. So sorry. So, um, yeah, yeah, so, no, exactly. so this, is, this is what we're basing our study on. And then what we get right. is, is, yeah. So, so these, the, uh, basically these entrepreneurs are more frugal through, through a variety of different measures and, you know, sort of spending less on their personal costs, spending less, uh, you know, less as a percentage of sales of the business. And so, you know, similar to, you know, the, all of us have grandparents, we could see it, in them that lived through the Great Depression, this is playing itself out in businesses that are, are uh, being run in China. So what's interesting is in your study, it wasn't necessarily tied to the success or failure of the business. It was more the risk tolerance. Yeah, we do look. Uh, so it, you're, you're right. So the main analyses were looking at the risk tolerance. We do have some analyses that look at performance of the firm. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting. So these Firms that where the entrepreneurs are more frugal have higher profitability because their costs are low, 
uh, but also their growth rates are much lower. So mm. the, these individuals are, are willing to take less risks and obviously grow, and their, and their businesses grow less. You know, uh, an interesting thing I learned from this study, that which I didn't know uh, before, is actually in the Cultural Revolution in particular, you know, some individuals were sort of withheld from being sent down. Uh, so, for instance, if a family has again, again sent down to the sent, sent down sent to, con- to the countryside, right? right yeah. Exactly. So, uh, so these were you know people living in urban areas, and teenage individuals were, were were sent to the countryside to you know work alongside farmers and understand rural life. You know, tremendous food scarcity. You know, President Xi spent uh, seven years doing this. You know, quoted as saying about how he was hungry every day, and you know it was the worst time to be hungry because this sort of body and mind. Um, we're growing. Uh, but the interesting thing is that, you know, if a family has multiple children, they're actually allowed to retain one with them in the city. Uh, mm. And so, you know, sort of like Sophie's Choice, you know, the, the movie, the Meryl Streep movie where, you know, she, uh, you know, has to make a choice whether she, you know, saves one of her children or, or lets one of them die. And so these entrepreneurs that, that actually were not sent down to the countryside actually have the opposite uh, findings. They actually, you know, they're more risky, their organizations grow more. However, uh, you know, they have lower profitability. So the second article we talked about, you've told me, has recently been published on a WeChat official account. I'm fascinated by the response. I mean, on the bottom, people are saying, you know, this is going to be censored. But actually, your co-author, who's a student of yours, had an interesting take on this. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's in, it was interesting, uh, sort of surprising to me to to see this summary and, and then sort of the, you know, sort of the comment in the, in the comment section, there there's, there's commentary about, about uh, censoring. But then, you know, when you look very carefully at the article, you know, they actually, uh, you know, the person that wrote it was trying to be a little bit inflammatory and maybe sort of, you know, sort of um, catch some eyeballs with, you know, the sort of talking about and, and I, I did not know this would be sensitive, but Mao Zedong Sushang, you know, they use this phrase a number of times, which apparently is, um, you know, I would I didn't realize that would be something that would be sensitive. Yeah. Uh, but that that uh, which is not something that was in your paper. That was not something that was in, okay. that was in the paper. Uh, and so so I mean the, the interesting you know this is, is interesting on many different levels. I mean one of the levels is that you know we talk about cultural revolution. We talk about Mao and ideology. I mean, both of these are relatively sensitive topics, but have actually not had any sort of pushback or or people suggest to us that this would would or is an issue. And and there's uh, was a more official summary of the article published through the journal, also on the same platform that this recent post was published, um, mm-hmm. Gigi Tong, which you know, I mean, my friends would post it in their WeChat groups and and got lots of nice little thumbs up and and you know, clap clapping hands. Yeah. Uh, but no one ever said anything about it being um, you know um, sensitive. The the interesting thing is this this newer one, you know, uh, you know, none of my friends have posted it uh, and. And, you know, people have said that it's sort of, to me personally, that it's might be someone, you know, it's probably going to be censored and it's, you know, someone is trying to, you know, cap- capture eyeballs. Um, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's fascinating. You don't necessarily think of, you know, basically the conversation uh, in the West around this stuff is there's a ton of self-censorship. But on the other hand, there's the flip side of like, man, if you write something edgy, a lot more people are, are going to want to read about it. So, yeah, and it's, it's interesting because the, um, um, you know, the, the number of views of this actually were double the one, the official one. Yeah. Uh, and it's just been out for a day or two. So. Yeah. 
So, um, you know, if any of those uh, 10,000 readers of this WeChat article have um, uh, want to get in touch, uh, I am at uh, J-O-R Schneider at gmail.com. <laughs> Happy to have you on for your take on the um, official WeChat summarizing Western academic sensitive article world. Um, <laughs> Chris, any any more general thoughts about doing uh, this type of research advice for young folks thinking about this sort of work in academia, pitfalls to avoid? Uh, what would you what would you say to uh, a first year grad student or a senior in college considering this line of work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's uh, it's very interesting. Um, you know, so so I think just following along this discussion of the of the potential censorship and self-censorship, you know, I have experienced, you know, I've, you know, I write about mostly things that would be seen as sensitive. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of my research looks at civil society, protests around environmental issues, cultural revolution. But to be honest, I have never felt any sort of pressure to not do these topics. You know, I give talks all over China about these. And I think that sort of there's a well-known article about, about sort of what, 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 what types of, of, of posts the Chinese government actually uh, censors by uh, some political scientists at the Harvard Kennedy School, Gary King, and some students, and find that mostly, you know, it's about organizing and collective action. Those are the things that they get censored more often. Uh, and so I just, you know, I want to say that these, you know, issues of know, civil society and, and, you know, government firm relations are tremendously important. And I don't, I, mean, I think people should investigate them more. And I think that there is, you know, you, you do run the risk of having someone misrepresent you on, on WeChat. And hopefully that will be corrected. Uh, we're, we're in the process of trying to suggest to the, to the author that they misrepresented things. I would not be afraid to actually tackle these, these issues. I mean, of course, you know, you don't want to intentionally like sort of poke a stick in the eye of the officials. But I do think, you know, these issues are important to study. And so I really encourage people to study them. Sure. And um, maybe a more uh, general pitch for sociology. I think you might be the first uh, uh, trained sociologist we've had on the uh, uh, the show. So you know, uh, economics it, it it you know makes the claim now to be the the, the king science, and uh, you know has the most folks in the White House and whatnot. But um, uh, you know, there, there seems to be this growing realization over the past few years that. Uh, sociology has really gotten short shrift maybe over the past few decades or so. So Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. You know, I'm someone who, uh, I don't know, sort of let a thousand flowers bloom. I mean, to sort of, you know, bookend our, our, the show with Mao quotes. But, you know, I do think, you know, it's, it's sort of sociologists have this famous quote of, uh, you know, Paul Krugman, uh, where he said, you know, the the, the hardest discipline, you know, to study was sociology because, it, you know, it was so messy and complex and hard to actually identify what's going on. And so, you know, this research that I've done, you know, we have a, a variety of quantitative data, theory, historical data, and, and try to use sophisticated economic techniques to identify these, you know, these psychological, cultural processes, and they're hard to do. Uh, and I think that, you know, many times, you know, economists and Social scientists more generally fall in the trap of really only studying questions where it's sort of easy to study them. And I encourage future scholars, I mean, really, you know, the things that are messy and hard to study is where the value is. And so I hope that um, 
yeah, more yeah. people study sociology. Yeah, I mean, doing doing lots of regressions and understanding small uh, market moves as opposed to answering questions like how has uh, a nation's psyche evolved over time. Um, you know, this is this is the sort of stuff you can get if you take uh, that extra sociology class. So, uh, do encourage um, do encourage folks to give the uh, give the discipline a chance. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Great, thanks so much for having me, Jordan. It was a lot of fun. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from Sup China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Chinese